Before we dive into today's episode, I want to tell you about a free three-act worksheet to help you structure your story. Whether you're a plotter or a pantser, a novelist or short fiction writer, this three-act worksheet will help you navigate your material and even begin each new story with a better plan. Download yours at nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. Stop getting stuck in the middle of your draft. Go grab this free worksheet, nancypinuccio.com forward slash act. How do you create suspense that has readers hanging on every word, devouring your story sentence by sentence, wanting to know what happens next? There are two techniques you can apply to your story right now that'll have your readers hungry to read more. And the best part is you can do it right on the sentence level with some simple changes. I'm going to give you examples from two stories, then we'll break it down so you can apply it to your story right now. So grab your work in progress, get a pencil, and let's do this. Writer Unleashed is for you, a writer who has a story you want to bring onto the page and into the hearts and minds of readers. I'm Nancy Pinuccio, writer, editor, and writing coach, and each week we'll explore techniques, mindsets, and inspiration for writing stories readers can't put down. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let's begin. Often when I'm coaching a student through a story revision, I'll ask for more dread. And what I mean by this is give me more suspense. Suspense is how we create and maintain the reader's curiosity. It's a way of playing with readers' expectations. Now, this isn't just for stories about murder or kidnapping, the stories we typically expect to be page turners. Suspense is anticipation or worry or fear about what's going to happen next. It's curiosity. Now, often writers are instructed to create suspense in the broad strokes, start in medias res, create characters readers care about, uh, put them in jeopardy, raise the stakes, end chapters with cliffhangers, etc. And, you know, these are all well and good, but all of these things are built sentence by sentence. You can create suspense right on the sentence level, all while building characters readers care about and all while raising the stakes. So the best way to get all of these things is by building them right on the sentence level. So today we're going to talk about how to use details to build tension and suspense. It's all about how you manipulate details. I'm going to give you examples from two stories, and then we're going to break them down to see how it all works. Here's the opening to Suzanne Burney's novel, A Crime in the Neighborhood. In 1972, Spring Hill was as safe a neighborhood as you could find near an East Coast city, one of those instant subdivisions where brick-split levels and two-car garages had been planted like cabbages on squares of quiet green lawn. 
Occasionally, somebody's Schwinn bicycle was stolen or a dog was hit by a car that kept on going. Once in a while, we heard about a shoplifter at the Spring Hill Mall, six blocks away. But otherwise, both the mall and the neighborhood always struck everyone as the most ordinary of places. Then, one summer evening, around 5.30, just as businesses at the mall had finished for the day, a florist named Miss Evelyn Crespo carried a box of orchid cassages out to her car for a wedding that night. She had parked far back behind the mall in a row of spaces reserved for employees below a two-acre wooded rise. That time of day, the mall's triangular shadow cut upward across the hill like a wedge. As Miss Crespo slid the corsages into her back seat, she heard what she thought was a cat mewing from the shaded half of the hillside. The sun was in her eyes when she backed away from the car to look around. After a moment, the mewing came again, or something like it, a small, weak sound. Although she was a heavy woman and the day was hot, she climbed partway up the rise toward where it flattened out, wading through the broken bottles, locust husks, and tangled creeper vines to see if the source of the mewing might be somebody's lost kitten. When she didn't find anything, she carefully edged back down toward the parking lot, once grabbing the branch of a laurel bush for support. Then she went inside the mall, locked up her shop for the night, waved to the hairdressers in the clip and curl hair salon, came out through the automatic glass doors to her car, carrying the bridal bouquet, and drove off to Bethesda to deliver her wedding flowers. Okay, let's unwrap this. So we're looking for contrasting details. Notice how the author immediately plunges us inside this suburban middle-class landscape. This is a neighborhood of brick split levels and two-car garages, houses that are so indistinguishable from one another, they resemble planted cabbages on quiet green lawns. We have the Schwinn bicycles. The town mall contains not just a hair salon, but a salon called Clip and Curl. We hear the sound of a cat mewing in the distance. We have the orchid cassages, a bridal bouquet. And then we have details like broken bottles, locust husks, and tangled creeper vines. These work on our subconscious in menacing fashion. Now, notice how the author interlaces these sinister details with more benevolent objects, such as the box of orchid cassages and the bridal bouquet. Now, these have their own connotations of complacent traditional family life. So it's the intermingling of these innocent details with menacing, ominous details that ratchets up the tension. It's what creates the suspense. Now, if the details were solely ominous, 
the murder of the young boy, which is revealed two paragraphs later, might feel to the reader like a foregone conclusion. But because the details clash, hovering between the safe and the threatening, tension is built right into the narrative. Each side illuminates the other. Contrasting details. Another way to create suspense is to not only use contrasting details, but to allow the details to accumulate over time. So number two, withhold and delay. A great example of this is Joyce Carol Oates' story, Where Are You Going? Where Have You Been? So let me set the stage. Connie is 15 years old, your typical teenage girl. She's pretty. She's aware that she's pretty. She's aware of her power to attract boys. And like many 15-year-old girls, she's preoccupied with her looks, with her hair, with her clothes, and with boys. She enjoys her own attractiveness. It's really the center of her world. And her world is pretty ordinary. And she lives on a quiet suburban street with her parents and older sister. Now, she goes to the shopping plaza with her friends. They wear ballerina flats and charm bracelets. And sometimes they go shopping or to a movie, but sometimes they sneak across the highway to a drive-in restaurant where older kids hang out. And unbeknownst to Connie, this is where she attracts the attention of a stranger who eventually winds up at her doorstep with tragic consequences. And here's the first time she encounters this man. Connie couldn't help but let her eyes wander over the windshields and faces all around her, her face gleaming with a joy that had nothing to do with Eddie or even this place. It might have been the music. She drew her shoulders up and sucked in her breath with the pure pleasure of being alive. And just at that moment, she happened to glance at a face just a few feet from hers. It was a boy with shaggy black hair in a convertible jalopy painted gold. He stared at her, and then his lips widened into a grin. Connie slid her eyes at him and turned away, but she couldn't help glancing back, and there he was, still watching her. He wagged a finger and laughed and said, "'Gonna get you, baby,' and Connie turned away again without Eddie noticing anything. So at this point, she notices him, but he doesn't seem as a threat just yet just an unwanted flirtation. Now, it may be that Connie actually feels complimented by the attention she's getting from this man, but we're thinking already, well, what does he mean by, I'm going to get you? Does he mean he's going to date her? Uh, Does he mean that he's going to hurt her? What does he mean? So our alarms are going off just a little bit at this point. Then one Sunday, her family goes to their relatives barbecue, and Connie decides to stay home alone while her family's out for the day. And two boys show up in a gold painted jalopy in her driveway. Now, there are plenty of contrasting details that tell us that she's in danger. And these details accumulate as the story continues. So we're experiencing Connie's terror as it mounts, as her own awareness of the danger she's in escalates. So listen to how the details accumulate. 
There were two boys in the car, and now she recognized the driver. He had shaggy, shabby black hair that looked crazy as a wig, and he was grinning at her. And there's a little banter about he wants her to get in the car, come on for a drive, let's go. And a little bit down later in the page, Connie blushed a little because the glasses made it impossible for her to see what this boy was looking at. She couldn't decide if she liked him or if he was just a jerk. And so she dawdled in the doorway and wouldn't come down or go back inside. So she's not sure how to take this guy. She doesn't know if she likes him. Should she get in the car? Should she not? We're already knowing at this point, based on what he's saying to her, that it's probably not a good idea for her to get in the car. Then a little bit further down in the page, he slapped his thighs. He was standing in a strange way, leaning back against the car as if he were balancing himself. He wasn't tall, only an inch or so taller than she would be if she came down to him. Connie liked the way he was dressed, which was the way all of them dressed. Tight faded jeans stuffed into black scuffed boots, a belt that pulled his waist in and showed how lean he was, and a white pullover shirt that was a little soiled and showed the strong small muscles of his arms and shoulders. He looked as if he probably did hard work lifting and carrying things. Even his neck looked muscular, and his face was a familiar face somehow. The jaw and chin and cheeks slightly darkened because he hadn't shaved for a day or two, and the nose, long and beak-like, sniffing as if she were a treat he was going to gobble up, and it was all a joke. Okay, so you can see that there are some conflicting details here, right? Again, we have some of those contrasting details. He's not tall. She doesn't think he's very tall. Um, He's dressed kind of the way a kid would be dressed. He hasn't shaved. And the thing about his nose being long and kind of sniffing as if she were a treat is a little troubling to us. But then later in the story, there's a turning point. At this at this point in the story, he's at the door. He's his request for her to get in the car have turned more into a demand and it just escalates and it, it gets more and more forceful. Connie let the screen door close and stood perfectly still inside it, listening to the music from her radio and the boys blend together. She stared at Arnold Friend. He stood there so stiffly relaxed pretending to be relaxed, with one hand idly on the door handle as if he were keeping himself up that way and had no intention of ever moving again. She recognized most things about him, the tight jeans that showed his thighs and buttocks and the greasy leather boots and the tight shirt and even that slippery, friendly smile of his, that sleepy, dreamy smile that all of the boys used to get across ideas they didn't want to put into words. She recognized all this and also the sing-song way he talked. Slightly mocking, kidding, but serious and a little melancholy. And she recognized the way he tapped one fist against the other in homage to the perpetual music behind him. But all these things did not come together. So she's starting to see those, uh, those different variances in him, those things that are, that are conflicting and that things are just 
little off kilter for her. She's starting to feel uneasy. And we are definitely starting to feel very uneasy about this guy. And then she asks him point blank how old he is. So he tells her he's the same age as her and maybe a few years older. He says 18. And then she notes his smile faded. She could see then that he wasn't a kid. He was much older, 30, maybe more. So now her heart is starting to pound faster. And so, so is ours. We're really worried now because now we really know she's in danger. And then she looks over at his friend who's still in the car and she realizes for the first time that he may be as old as 40. Okay, so now we're really scared. We're in active suspense now. We're saying, what is going to happen to this girl? Is she going to get away? Is she going to get back into the house? What is going to happen next? So there's a lot of juxtaposing details that are making us uneasy, but these details are accumulating. So they're not put forth in one paragraph. They are uh, dispensed very carefully, very slowly. And again, these, these details start to accumulate to give us a full picture of what's happening. So it's staying firmly rooted in Connie's experience, and this is where we feel the most tension and suspense. For example, while he's leaning against the car, she notices his black scuffed boots, the white pullover shirt that shows his muscles. She's not sure if she likes him or if he's a jerk. Now we know she's in trouble already. And part of the suspense is knowing that more than she knows that this is a bad situation that she's in and she should just close the door before he gets there. But when he's at the door, we get different details. Now she's starting to see what we already know. She sees the greasy leather boots. So things change now. So the perception now is different. The tight shirt, the slippery smile, the sing-song, slightly mocking, kidding, but serious in a little melancholy way that he talks. And at one point, he puts his boot in the doorway to keep her from closing it, and she notices that his boots are stuffed with tissue paper to lift his height. So as all these details accumulate, we get more and more concerned. We're concerned from the beginning, but it escalates the more the details accrue. Okay, here's what I want you to do next. Take one scene from a story you're working on, a scene where you want to bring more tension and suspense to. Number one, look at your details. Maybe all your details are ominous, or maybe they're all neutral. See if you can bring contrasting details into the scene. When details clash, there's a fight within the sentence, and this creates tension within the reader. They're not conscious about why they're experiencing tension, but it keeps your reader invested in what's happening and guessing what will happen next. And this is what makes your story exciting to read. Number two, see if there are ways to draw this scene out. Remember, a scene is a relatively short span of time treated in long scope. For example, in Where Are You Going, Where Have You Been? The scene with Connie and the man is one scene. It spans the bulk of the story. 
The scene starts on page three and continues all the way to the end of the story on page 11. Let the details build slowly, layer them, show this angle, then that angle, then another until all is revealed. Put yourself in your character's place here. Remember, we never understand people or situations all at once. Slow down. Think of a striptease. You don't want to reveal everything all at once. Delay and withhold. So to create suspense, number one, contrasting details. Use juxtaposing details in the same sentence or paragraph. Orchid corsages, bridal bouquet, clip and curl hair salon with broken bottles, locust husks, and tangled creeper vines. Sing songs, slightly mocking, kidding, but serious in a little melancholy way of talking. And number two, withhold and delay. Let the details accumulate. Parse them out slowly. Stay rooted in your character's experience. Thank you so much for playing with me today. As always, keep writing, and I'll talk to you soon.